0: Welcome back for part two of the Cemetery Road Murders. If you haven't listened to part one, press pause, get caught up, then come back here. We're picking up right before Edward's murder trial. He's just been brought into a private room where the prosecutor tells him he believes he's definitely going to win and Edward's going to get the death penalty. To which Edward has responded, There's more to the story, and he didn't act alone. Edward told the prosecutor, look, I'll tell the whole truth, every last detail, and I'll plead guilty if we take the death penalty off the table. So they went to Stoney Martin and said, what do you think about this plea deal? And just wanting the truth, Stoney said, okay, let's take the death penalty off the table and hear what he has to say. Part of this plea deal was that Kilgore had to withdraw his appeal of the sanity hearing so that he couldn't be moved to a mental facility. Interestingly, the sentence did not include without possibility of parole. So if he was found guilty, he could still be eligible for parole in 16 years. So this entire trial ended up lasting 33 minutes. That had to have been a disappointment for that eager crowd that was ready to, you know, see the show. So Kilgore's behavior was questionable the days following his trial. He once asked to see Stoney and Ruth. He wanted them to come visit. And when the jailers asked him why, he said to destroy them. And they found a 12-inch makeshift knife that he'd sharpened from a copper shower valve in his cell. So, some instability there, you could say. (laughs) Now, if you'll recall, I mentioned that Edward Kilgore initially told investigators he was at a friend's house the night of the murders, before he confessed. He said he was with a music professor at the university. That friend he was talking about was George Melvin Daggett. Daggett was a good friend to to Kilgore. He brought him his V8 and canned corn in jail. Daggett was head of the piano division of the music department at Western. Kilgore would later refer to Daggett as his soulmate, but not on the day of his trial. On the day of Kilgore's trial, he called Daggett a murderer. So the day after Edward's trial, the police questioned Mr. Daggett for over four hours, and again the following day. But they couldn't charge him with anything. Kilgore again went before a grand jury and told them some new information. He said he had not thrown the murder weapon in the river. His mom found it wrapped in his clothing and she gave it to her brother, Kilgore's uncle, for him to get rid of it. Then he explained to the grand jury how he met Professor Daggett in 1946 when he took his class. Daggett was also a music therapist and offered Kilgore free lessons. He told the grand jury that Daggett was the mastermind behind the murders. It was all his idea. He said they had also cooked up a plan to blackmail another professor at Western. In all, this testimony lasted a little over an hour. And then some family members of Kilgore testified that he had told them a similar story, that Daggett had basically coerced this young boy into helping with these murders. As Kilgore was leaving the courtroom that day, he told reporters that his whole confession had been written for him. All he did was sign at the bottom. They asked if any part of that confession was true. He said, sure, I walked through the Martin house, but that's it. So this grand jury was about to indict George Melvin Daggett. But to some folks who knew him, this didn't make a whole lot of sense. George Daggett was born in 1913 in Minneapolis. Even as a young boy, he was a talented musician. He was also interested in trains and railroads. His family was religious and giving. George was a good student. He graduated with honors from the University of Minneapolis School of Music, then Juilliard. He taught at Indiana colleges, then in Kansas. He also worked as a psychiatric aide and music therapist at a facility in Connecticut for a couple years. He was hired at Western Kentucky in 1945. He also performed music around the region. Everyone found him brilliant and talented. He was also described as witty, mild-mannered, and studious. He lived in an apartment with his mother near the western campus, and he didn't have many close friends. Keep in mind, he hadn't lived there long, but he did go into town to watch movies fairly often. So in 1946, Kilgore took Daggett's music class, and Daggett would visit Kilgore at his family home in Glasgow and they spent a lot of time together at Daggett's studio at Western. Daggett was indicted on September 28, 1949. The charge was accessory before the fact. He had already resigned from Western. They would indict him a second time uh, for extortion, and that was related to what Kilgore had said about them planning to blackmail another teacher at Western. Daggett had a very sick mother he was taking care of. Remember, she lived with him, and it was getting expensive, and so I guess their plan was to frame this female professor in a moment of indecency, if you will, and then extort her. So on top of this extortion scheme that Edward told them about, money made sense as the motive for the Martin murders. Kilgore said that he and Daggett would take drives down Cemetery Road dreaming and scheming about how they would steal the Martin fortune. So their plan became this. Kill Dr. Martin and his wife and Stoney too. Then Edward would marry their daughter Ruth And he and Daggett would split the Martin estate. They would all live happily ever after. And on June 29th of the previous year, the plan was set in motion. According to Kilgore, he and Daggett both entered the Martin bedroom. Kilgore started hitting Dr. Martin and then he shot both of them. He didn't pin the actual shootings on Daggett, And it's believed that that's because he'd already confessed, changed his story, and it would just look too fake if he said Daggett was also the one who fired the fatal shots. But he said after the shootings, he took Daggett back to his apartment and then went to Glasgow and the next morning got in his car to dispose of the items when the police showed up. But Daggett made this whole plan. He he was the brains of the operation. Kilgore also said that Ruth was the only girl he ever loved, but that Daggett also had a special place in his heart. He said, We were soulmates. I loved him. Remember, this is rural Kentucky in 1949. People are clutching their pearls. Daggett was arrested the day of his indictment. Kilgore hadn't been moved to Eddyville yet, and he asked to be put in the same cell as Daggett. To which Daggett replied, quote, Please don't put me anywhere near that Kilgore, which sent Kilgore bursting into tears. The next morning, Kilgore was taken to Eddyville. Meanwhile, Daggett's mother was telling reporters that her son could never hurt a fly and that he was at home with her on the night of the murders. When asked about her son's relationship with Edward Kilgore, she said her son George just rec- recognized from his psychiatric training that Edward was a boy who needed help. She said Kilgore was musically and poetically talented, but that he had a mean streak. The other interesting thing is that she admitted the Kilgore family had lent the Daggetts money in the past. And then when Edward was arrested, they asked the Daggetts for money for his legal fees, and they refused and so that may have made the Kilgores mad and may have led Edward to include Daggett in his story. Daggett had a court-appointed attorney named Paul Huddleston. Huddleston had never tried a case before and he only got this one because no one else wanted it because it involved homosexuality. No lawyer wanted to talk about the relationship these men had. And so this green lawyer came in to defend this high-profile murder case. The best thing he could do at the time was convince this jury that George Daggett was not gay. Because if he was, regardless of whether they thought the crime was committed by him or not, they weren't going to show a gay man any mercy in rural Kentucky in 1949. But it wasn't Attorney Huddleston or George Daggett that was the star of this trial That would be Edward Kilgore, who provided testimony described as, quote, the most lurid, bizarre, and sensational testimony ever heard in a Kentucky courtroom. George Daggett's accessory to murder trial started on January 7, 1950. Kilgore was brought in from Eddyville, Daggett pled not guilty, and testimony started that Friday the 13th. Again, hundreds of people packed into the courtroom, and they were eager to hear Edward Kilgore's testimony. Kilgore explained how he and Daggett spent many nights together listening to music and plotting murder. They would bring binoculars to Cemetery Road to spy on the Martins to find out where their bedroom was, and then... He went through the day of the murders. Edward said he went to the Daggett's apartment around five o'clock, 5 p.m., but George wasn't there. Until about six, when George got home and he, his mother, and Edward ate dinner together. Then they went for a ride in Kilgore's sister's car. Then they came back to the apartment, they went to the Western Music Building, but someone else was already there, so they kept driving. Kilgore decided to head for Cemetery Road. And all of a sudden, they found themselves outside the Martin house again. Daggett got out of the car at the end of the long driveway. Kilgore parked the car in a field behind the house. And he said, quote, I went around in front of the house to tell Mr. Daggett that I was there and that shortly I would be through the house, I suppose, so that he could be at the front door awaiting me. And I went around front and told him. Kilgore said he made his way through the back of the house and opened the door for Daggett, but he was gone. But by then, Dr. Martin was awake and rushing at Kilgore. So that's when the gun fired accidentally in that front hallway. Then Daggett just appeared, and together, he and Kilgore rushed into the Martin bedroom with Dr. Martin And the doctor was really putting up a fight, and so Daggett started beating him with the sand-filled sock and a flashlight. Then together, they were able to tie them up. But Dr. Martin got free again, and that, Kilgore said, was when Daggett told him to, quote, shoot them and let's get out of here. And so he did. Kilgore also said that he stuck a knife in Dr. Martin's head as they were leaving, for good measure. Then, as he said before, he dropped Daggett off back at his apartment and headed for Glasgow. After a recess, Kilgore continued his storytelling. He said the gun they used was one they'd stolen from a Mr. Nom. He said Daggett was the one that told him about the gun, and he was the lookout while Kilgore broke into the home to steal it, and Daggett's the one that taught him how to shoot the gun. He said that after they had all they'd finished all of this, and remember, they had planned to kill Stoney too. He said then he, Daggett, and Ruth would live together in the Martin estate, right? He also said again that Daggett was his soulmate and that he loved him and that he was closer to him than he was to his own mother. And this is a big part of why this case was such big news, because of this homosexual element to it. And the fact that he was still saying that he loved Ruth was had to be mind-boggling to people. I mean, what, he loves a man and a woman? <laughs> so he also claimed that he had told Ruth about his plans to murder the Martins, but she thought he was joking, and Edward said she was in no way involved in this murder plot. Hold that thought. So finally, Huddleston, Daggett's attorney, got the chance to cross-examine Kilgore, and he asked him, you know, do you think about killing people often, Edward? And Kilgore said, quote, for a long time I had felt a tendency to kill a member of the opposite sex. I knew that I would feel better if I killed somebody. He said he fantasized about chopping up women. Quote, many times I've thought within a part of my mind of destroying girls, There have been times when I would sit. It's hard for me to find now just how I did feel towards these girls, just how these thoughts would come up. But I know that there have been times when I was considerably moved to bring some peculiar feeling out of myself by destroying girls. I wanted to see them like dead statues up in the cemetery that stand up on the monument. He divulged that he and Daggett had talked about murdering a lot of people, Daggett's sister-in-law, the husband of his landlady, eight people in total, including Daggett's own mother, mostly for financial gain. So they needed to hear all this from more than just Edward, right? So they called Kilgore's mom to the stand, who said Daggett seemed to have her son under a spell. Both his mother and sister said that Kilgore had been a fairly normal college student until he met George Daggett. Which, if you'll recall, completely contradicts what his mother said about him during his sanity hearing, which was basically that he'd been batshit crazy since childhood. So her her testimony did 180. Huddleston made Ella Kilgore repeat that testimony from the sanity hearing which had to have made her look terrible to the jury and everybody else and then surprisingly George Daggett took the stand in his own defense and he talked about having to listen to Kilgore's gruesome fantasies he had to listen to Edward talk about killing girls and feeding them to pigs Daggett admitted that Kilgore had talked to him about murdering these various people, but that didn't mean Daggett engaged in this conversation or encouraged it. Daggett also admitted they were together the night before the murders. Kilgore showed up at his apartment distraught, asking him to take him to the school to play music. But, like Kilgore said, there were people at the school, so they didn't go in. Daggett said they drove around downtown for a few minutes, then went back to the apartment and Kilgore left around 11.15. Daggett went to sleep and stayed asleep until 7.30 the next morning. He didn't know a thing about the murders until he read about them in the news. During their drive that night, yeah, they'd driven around town, but not to Cemetery Road. Daggett was questioned about their relationship. He said they became fast friends. He wanted to help Kilgore get out of his, quote, dark moods through music therapy. And he said Kilgore was extremely musically talented, so they shared that interest. He said he brought Kilgore food in jail and sent money to his mother because they had given him a loan before, and he felt like it was the right thing to do. In his closing argument, Orendorf said Kilgore shot the couple, but Daggett was the mastermind. And this crime, it had to have been committed by two people. Gun, flashlight, makeshift club, knife. How could one man use all those items by himself and do all of this by himself? Orendorf pointed out that Kilgore really didn't have anything to gain by revealing his accomplice. He knew he was going to be in big trouble no matter what. He wasn't promised anything for his testimony. It wouldn't do anything for his parole eligibility or anything like that. He failed to mention that it took the death penalty off the table. He also pointed out that Daggett had testified just then that there were no binoculars in the apartment. They didn't have anything like that, but... Daggett's mother, Alice, testified that she did have some antique opera glasses in the apartment, and that's what they could have used to spy on the Martins. Huddleston said, look, this Edward kid has been sitting, brooding, in an Eddieville jail cell for 15 months. He's had so much time to concoct these stories. If they sound credible, it's because he's been sitting in his cell rehearsing them for over a year but the only people in the world who are corroborating what he says are his mother and his sister. After closing arguments, Judge Rhodes told the jury their job was to either find Mr. Daggett guilty, which would mean life in prison, or the electric chair, or innocent, which would mean an acquittal. One hour in, the jurors came out to tell the judge they could not reach an agreement. Hour and a half later, still deadlocked. So by 4.05 p.m., Judge Rhodes declared a mistrial. A week later, four local guys got together and put up bail for Daggett so that he could be out of jail while he awaited his second trial, which would start on April 17th, 1950. About 100 less people showed up for this one. Still a lot of people in the courtroom. The prosecution essentially reenacted the first trial Kilgore once again their star witness. His mother, Ella, testified again. This time, she said her son had, quote, peculiar ideas, but his mind was sound as a dollar until he got mixed up with Daggett. She also said this time that her son had several girlfriends in college and that he always acted normal around girls, but that he would also sometimes come home from dates and, quote, cry Practically all day. Kilgore wasn't at Eddyville anymore. He was housed at the newly built LaGrange Jail in Oldham County. And this time he was brought in and he testified for about two hours. Same stories. He said, Yeah, we also planned to kill Daggett's mom since she had become such a financial burden, and other people. And he said they had this black bag filled with tools for whenever the moment presented itself. Uh, Knives, wires, skeleton keys, like they found on Kilgore the morning of his arrest. He also admitted this time around that he had spent the entire night with Daggett on several occasions, which was more of an admittance of homosexuality than any previous comment he'd made But he said his feelings towards Daggett changed when he stopped sending Kilgore's mom $10 a month after Kilgore was arrested. It's kind of confusing. Throughout this story, it's like these two families were just giving each other loans and sending each other money at various points. Um, And that definitely could be... that could have a lot to do with all this. Uh, Anyway, this time... Daggett was asked while on the stand about his feelings for Edward Kilgore. Did he love him? Daggett said he was fond of Kilgore but didn't consider it love. He asked, he was asked if Kilgore ever told him about his plan to murder the Martins. Daggett said yes. He told him about it once in passing. So the prosecutor said, "Well, why didn't you tell anyone?" And Daggett said, well, I didn't think he would actually go through with it. So at first, the judge gave the jury the same instructions as the first time. You may find George Daggett guilty of willful murder, meaning death or life in prison, or you can acquit him. But then, after being persuaded by the prosecution, he also told the jury that they may find the defendant guilty a voluntary manslaughter. This option of manslaughter really opened the door for the jury to explore the possibility that even if Daggett didn't go with Kilgore to commit the murders, he may have known about them and he didn't do anything to stop them. So after a half hour of deliberations, the jury asked for clarifications on their instructions again, and then a little while later, one of the jurors came back into the courtroom and asked, quote, Judge, we wonder if you'd tell us what the word homosexual means. Judge Rhodes said, I'm not telling you, it doesn't matter, follow your instructions. They couldn't come to a decision that night, so they reconvened the next morning, and after an hour, they would reached a verdict. George Daggett was found guilty of manslaughter and sentenced to 11 years in prison. Within hours of the verdict, Huddleston was filing a motion for a new trial. The jury was clearly prejudiced, and the option of manslaughter shouldn't have been given. He also filed a forma pauperis, asking that the state pay Daggett's legal fees from then on, and that motion was approved. The motion for a new trial, however, was denied. Next, it would go to the Kentucky Court of Appeals. In his appeal argument, Huddleston spoke about the prejudiced jury. Quote, Any man must assume an unbecoming ignorance of human nature to deny what those 12 men had been talking about in the jury room. They had been talking about the generally published sex angle in this case. And they subsequently concluded that Daggett ought to be punished for his sins, if not for the crime mentioned in the indictment. Because a man may have homosexual tendencies, he is not more likely to murder a fellow human being. Remember, Huddleston had never been in court before he represented Daggett. This was his first murder trial. But the argument he submitted to the Kentucky Court of Appeals was so highly praised the state's assistant attorney general wrote, quote, we wish to state that no defendant in any criminal case has been more ably represented than Daggett. This writer has prepared more than 500 briefs before this court, but he has never seen a better brief than that prepared by Mr. Huddleston, if indeed any has been as good. I just thought that was cool. So in February of 1951, 10 months after Daggett was found guilty of manslaughter, his conviction was overturned. The court went so far as to say Judge Rhodes should have instructed the jury to acquit Daggett on lack of evidence, and it was wrong of him to throw in manslaughter at the last minute. You can't do that. And they agreed with the uh, the prejudice jury claim. The jury was thinking about sexual orientation, not the Martin murders. Um, Some people around this time were just waking up to the concept that homosexuality isn't a deviant behavior or a mental disorder, including the famed Dr. Guttermach, who wrote in a 1952 Scientific Journal article that, quote, there is no evidence to support the prevalent misconception that homosexuals are in general antisocial individuals. So, Top Orendorf, the prosecutor was deciding whether or not to take this to trial a third time. Meanwhile, Daggett's bail was lowered to $1,000. And finally, on April 2nd, 1951, all charges against George Daggett were dismissed. It mostly came down to Kilgore. Orndorff knew that he just didn't have the credibility as a witness. So it just wasn't going to work. Huddleston went on to practice law for another two decades. He served as a Special Assistant Kentucky Attorney General in the 60s, helping to crack down on illegal gambling. He was a um, State House Representative from 1958 to 1960, defeating none other than Rhodes Myers in the primary. Daggett had been forced to resign from Western and told reporters he felt his career was probably over and he was flat broke. He left town. He went to work at a GM plant in Michigan. Uh, Around 1958, he started teaching music at a junior high school in Detroit. Uh, He occasionally performed at small venues, and he died of a heart attack in 1965. Prosecutor Natcher stuck to his guns about Daggett being at least an accomplice. He wrote, quote, It later developed that Daggett was a sex maniac, and he and Kilgore paraded around during the nighttime, committing all kinds of gruesome pranks. So, what about Kilgore? I haven't even told you all the big twist yet. So, Edward Kilgore, he was moved to LaGrange, he was moved to the Kentucky State Reformatory, which was a medium security facility, and then in June of 1965, the same year George Daggett died, Edward Kilgore was granted parole, 17 years after his conviction, he was only 42 years old. The state parole board chairman said Kilgore had, quote, an exceptionally good record at the reformatory, and prison officials and psychiatrists also recommended his release. But Bowling Green locals were, as you can imagine, absolutely shocked by this. So as part of his parole, he had to stay out of Warren County for the next five years. Stoney Martin passed away in 1957, leaving Ruth a widow, Uh, They didn't have any kids. And there were these rumors that Ruth may have had something to do with the Martin murders. And this was fueled by speculation that she and Kilgore reconnected after his release. William Natcher always thought she was involved in the murders. Quote, During the prosecution of the Kilgore case, Ruth knew that I knew she was much more involved than could be substantiated with proper evidence, which could be accepted in court. All during the trial of the Kilgore case, she just sat and glared at me. And there was this strange thing that happened sometime in the early 70s. Top Orendorf had become a local bank president, and while he was at work one day, Ruth walked in and asked, if he remembered Edward Kilgore. And Orendorf is like, uh, yeah, how could I forget? And Ruth's like, oh, well, he's with me. He's waiting outside, and he'd like to talk to you. So Kilgore came into the bank and basically asked Orndorff if he thought it would be all right if he moved back to Bowling Green. And Orndorff is like, of course not. People hate you here. That's a terrible idea. And so Ruth and Edward left the office together and they left a bag of oranges it's just weird Um, another Bowling Green resident said that Ruth showed up to a Christmas party sometime in the 70s with her friend Harry so we don't know for sure but people thought it was just Edward going by his first name Harry Uh, both their lives were kind of quiet Kilgore died in 1981 in Fort Pierce Florida he was 58 Um, He was out riding his bicycle and got hit by a car, and it was a hit-and-run. The driver was never found. He was cremated, and his remains are still in Florida. Ruth eventually remarried, and in 2019, quote, The Daily News tracked down the youngest of her three sons from her second marriage. The mystery regarding the long-rumored reunion of Kilgore and Ruth was at long last publicly solved. So Ruth's second husband was a a man named Sam Humphreys, and they had three sons together, and then they got divorced in the early 70s, and then Ruth split her time between Kentucky and Florida. Ruth's youngest son, Eric, said that Edward and Ruth ran into each other in a drugstore parking lot in Florida around 1972. Eric was in the backseat of the car when this happened, and he said they just exchanged pleasantries. But then they started seeing each other regularly, and they were both splitting their time between Kentucky and Florida. And Eric said he and his family even lived with Kilgore for a while in a mobile home in Bowling Green in the late 70s. Ruth and her family were living with Edward Kilgore. And yes, he had started going by Harry, And enough time had passed that younger people weren't putting two and two together they didn't know who he was and the crime rate in Bowling Green was pretty bad so they had other stuff to worry about so he just blended into the background with Ruth and her sons Ruth's son Eric didn't understand for a long time why some of his extended family hated Harry and didn't want him around. And then finally, after Ruth passed away, they got the full story. They learned who Harry really was. They also learned that Stoney Martin had stipulated in his will that their mother would not get any of the Martin fortune if she remarried, which she obviously did to Eric's dad. It said that if she did remarry, the huge estate, all the acreage, stocks, bonds, would go to the independent order of Longfellows. So, that's how Ruth went from a mansion to a mobile home. But Eric described the Harry Edward Kilgore he knew as compassionate and generous. People loved him. He was a Seventh-day Adventist. He was also obsessed with nutrition and became a vegetarian when he got out of prison. Harry Edward Kilgore didn't have an official job in Bowling Green, although he did some work, uh, some odd jobs here and there. He was a repairman while he was in Florida, but Ruth's son Eric said he was very smart and could fix anything and always helped him with his math homework. Edward's sister married a wealthy man and helped Edward financially, and so Edward was able to buy some land in Alabama, in Jackson's Gap. And he was a bit of a doomsdayer. He believed that society would collapse, and so he would have this safe haven off the grid in Alabama. He attended some revival meetings during his time there. Interestingly, Eric described Kilgore as more of a father figure— than just his mom's boyfriend. But Eric didn't really have nice things to say about his own mom. He said she was self-centered and the opposite of nurturing. She never had a full-time job, but did work occasionally as a massage therapist. But Eric did say Kilgore had his flaws too. Once he told Eric that he liked the feeling of someone's blood running down his arm he also said that Kilgore once gave him the rundown of the murders and his retelling was very similar to his original confession and that his motive was just wanting to be with Eric's mother Ruth and to get his hands on the Martin estate Ruth suffered from dementia for many years before her passing she died in October of 2017 she nor Kilgore ever discussed her involvement in the murders But Eric did say that Ruth and Edward Kilgore were in love. He was always head over heels in love with her, and she definitely reciprocated. So what about the murder mansion today? The hundreds of acres surrounding the mansion have been developed. After Stoney died, it sat vacant for years, and in that time, it was not properly maintained, so it wasn't ever used by the Odd Fellows as it was intended to be. The home was purchased in 1959 by three local businesses. Uh, This was an auction and they bought the house and 200 acres for $240,000. The buyers indicated they bought it for the land, for future development and the house continued to sit vacant until 1961 when it was purchased by Ralph and Romanza Johnson. When they bought it, there were still bullet holes and bloodstains. In 1966, they sold it to Joe and Edward DeBella, and in 2001, it was sold to Norm and Jimmy Lou Johnson via auction again, and they embraced the house's history. They call it the murder mansion themselves. They renovated for two years, and all evidence of two murders has since been repaired, covered, and replaced. The interior has been updated, but the exterior is visually very similar to the way it looked when the murders took place. And I'm sorry to report the current owners, as well as all the ones before them who lived in the house for over 35 years, say they haven't experienced any paranormal activity. So now I wanna hear from you all. What do you think? Did Edward Kilgore do this all by himself? Did he have an accomplice? And if so, Was it George Daggett? Or, what I think is maybe a little more likely, was it Ruth McKinney? Uh, Send me an email, kyhistoryhaunts at gmail.com. Let me know what you want to hear about next. Like I said, I do have that octagon hall coming up, uh, that episode coming up soon. Uh, I sat down with the guy that runs the place for like two hours, and I had him all to myself. It was was great. And uh, let's see. There's some new merch on the website, kyhistoryhaunts.com. And I'm always working on, I'm working on a bunch of new stuff. So there will be more merch on the website soon. And uh, happy Halloween. And until next time.